0: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have Have you heard? heard? Have you heard? Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
1: And I'm Jack Schneider.
0: And Jack, today marks an anniversary of sorts.
1: A big anniversary.
0: Actually, it marks more than one anniversary,
1: many important anniversaries.
0: So obviously, distilling an entire year of Betsy DeVos into a single half-hour podcast episode isn't an easy task, especially when one of us, and that would be me, is somewhat obsessed with this particular public official. I spent much of the past year writing about her, traipsing around her home state of Michigan. I even crashed her joint visit to an Ohio school with American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten. All of which is to say that this episode isn't meant to provide an exhaustive look at everything DeVos did in her first year as Secretary of Education. Instead, it's a selective examination, starting with this assignment that I gave to Jack. So, Jack... I gave you the extremely tall order of sifting back through an entire year's worth of remarks and interviews and speeches that Betsy DeVos gave, and settling upon a single favorite quote. Were you able to rise to the occasion?
1: It was hard, but I've got one here. I even fetched the audio for you. Here we go.
2: Let me offer this example from a different part of our daily lives. Let me ask, how many of you got here today using an Uber, a Lyft, or another ride-sharing service? A few of you, good. Did you choose that because it was more convenient than hoping a taxi would drive by? Even if you didn't use a ride-sharing service today, I would bet most of you at least have the app on your phone. Just like the traditional taxi system revolted against ride-sharing, so too does the education establishment feel threatened by the rise of school choice. In both cases, the entrenched status quo has resisted models that empower individuals. Nobody mandates that you take an Uber or Lyft over a taxi, nor should they. But if you think ride-sharing is the best option for you, the government shouldn't get in your way.
0: I have to say that those were among the longest 46 seconds of my life. Give us a little context for what we just heard.
1: So those were remarks delivered in March of 2017 at the Brookings Institution. And the thing that I love the most about it is not just the uh, comparison of educating a young person uh, to driving someone from point A to point B, but also the uh, implication that there are lots of choices out there, um, that people like having more options, for instance, and then she lists them for us. Uber Pool, Uber X, Lyft Line, Lyft Plus. So far, I really only hear two options. Um, And I think that that's really interesting to think about uh, in relation to some of the episodes that we did earlier in the year uh, about... The corporate education agenda, for instance, or for profit higher education, this drive toward consolidation and market share, while at the same time pushing really relentlessly for deregulation. And so, you know, if we unpack this analogy about Uber and Lyft, what we see is the rise of two dominant uh, for profit providers seeking to. Gain as much market share, working towards as much of a monopoly as either one might be able to get, um, and putting the publicly regulated option, taxicabs, uh, out of business. Now, taxicabs are problematic in many ways, but they are publicly regulated uh, in a way that Uber and Lyft are not. And so I think that this is really interesting as a kind of display of her thinking and her ideological agenda.
0: Well, I picked a somewhat different quote, and I'm wondering if based on the past year of our episodes and given what you know about my favorite topics in all the world, if you can guess what quote of Betsy DeVos's from last year I might have seized upon.
1: I think it's going to be related to an enemy of... Uh, the welfare state, and a proponent of a kind of uh, anti-regulatory, pro-free market approach to governance. But I'm seeing a look in your eyes that says that she's not looking domestically for a hero and, uh, and role model, but rather overseas to perhaps the Iron Lady herself,
0: Jack, you hit the nail on the head. My favorite DeVos quote of the year came from the remarks that she gave to the convention of the American Legislative Exchange Council in Denver in the spring. And and there she referred to Margaret Thatcher, the former British prime minister, as one of her idols. And we do not have the audio of that speech, so I'm going to helpfully read that little bit.
1: I'm really excited for this.
0: What exactly is education, if not an investment in students? I was reminded of something another Secretary of Education once said. Her name was Margaret. No, not spellings, Thatcher. Lady Thatcher regretted that too many seemed to blame all their problems on quote, society. But who is society? She asked. There's no such thing. There are individual men and women, and there are families. Families, she said, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. The Iron Lady was right then, and she still Right today,
1: our listeners can't see me standing and saluting you right now.
0: <laughs> well, there are a couple of reasons why I love that remark, and one is that she doesn't mention that at one point Margaret Thatcher's nickname in Britain was the Milk Snatcher <laughs> 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 because she actually eliminated milk in the schools. So there's that, and and the other thing is that you know I mentioned at the very beginning that my uh, following of DeVos. Over the past year has, you know, bordered on the obsessive end. And I did trail her and Randy Weingarten, the AFT president, when they jointly visited a school in Van Wert, Ohio, which is the Northwest corner of Ohio. They went to a very rural school. And while DeVos didn't quote Thatcher during that visit, she made her same sort of argument, her you're on your own argument, and that there are, there is no education system. And you could just see that it, it just, you know, it landed like a lead balloon. It doesn't make any sense to people who uh, whose schools provide sort of the glue of their community that they're totally on their own. Now, I know that I assigned you the task of picking out your top DeVos quote, but I also took the liberty of selecting one that I think should be your favorite. One of Betsy DeVos's regular themes is that schooling in America hasn't changed a whit since the beginning of time, but she gave a recent talk where she really took that argument to a new level. And I'm thinking about a recent speech that she gave at the American Enterprise Institute. They had convened some experts to review the legacy of education reform from Bush to Obama. And Jack... To make things special, and since we don't have any audio, I want you to read the section of her remarks that really just kind of drove you over the edge. I want you to share those with the world.
1: You're just trying to punish me. I am. (laughs) Why do we group students by age? Why do schools close for the summer? Why must the school day start with the rise of the sun? (laughs) Why are schools assigned by your address? Why do students have to go to a school building in the first place? Why is choice only available to those who can buy their way out or buy their way in? Why can't a student learn at his or her own pace? Why isn't technology more widely embraced in schools? Why do we limit what a student can learn based upon the faculty and facilities available?
0: What I love about that particular bulleted list is that not only not only does it revisit some familiar devosian themes... But I really felt like it was almost personally directed at you, Jack Schneider, that she was, this was her way of saying, you see, at edu underscore historian, your entire life has been worthless.
1: That's right. It's a really good thing that I've been doing more contemporary policy work, because otherwise I would really call into question my entire scholarly agenda. Uh, You know, the fact that historians have answered many of these questions um, seems to be, a matter of little concern to her. And I would also add that, you know, it isn't just that some of these questions can be answered historically, right? So, why do schools close for the summer is a question that there's a historical answer for, right? Schools closed for the summer and winter because it was excruciatingly hot and cold during those periods of time. Um, but there's also a sociological answer to these questions. So for instance, why do schools close for the summer? Well, there was a reason for it in the first place, but it continues today because many teachers depend on that uh, as a means of restoring their energy and sanity after the kind of 50-hour work weeks uh, that they work on a regular basis throughout the school year. Many families structure their family vacations around this. Students would be Uh, outraged and horrified if summer vacation was suddenly taken away. There in fact have been experiments uh, in year-round schooling and they by and large have been rejected by people who view it as a kind of aberration from their own experiences and from what they feel like the normal kind of school calendar should be. Um, Again, right, the sort of work that Betsy DeVos appears to be dismissing here.
0: Well, Jack, I'm sorry to tell you that the answer to all of those rhetorical questions that you just shared with us is actually school choice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And, uh, and I've got a clip to play for you about school choice, because it turns out that school choice is not nearly as complicated as we've made it out to be, that it's actually almost as simple as buying a sandwich from a food truck.
2: Near the Department of Education, there aren't many restaurants. But you know what? Food trucks started lining the streets to provide options. Some are better than others, and some are even local restaurants that have added food trucks to their businesses to better meet their customers' needs. Now, if you visit one of those food, food trucks instead of a restaurant, do you hate restaurants? Or are you trying to put grocery stores out of business? No. No. You are simply making the right choice for you based on your individual needs at the time. Just as in how you eat, education is not a binary choice.
0: I'm really glad you picked that snippet to share. Her line about food trucks got a lot of attention, and um, I think it overshadowed some other remarks in that speech that were just as extreme. For example, she also made the claim that parents have an inalienable right to choose a school, or she likes to put it, a learning option for their kids. But coming back to the food trucks, because it sounded like such a crazy analogy, I think people may have missed the thinking that underpins her argument. And you wrote a very provocative, piece last year on how there's something fundamental about markets that DeVos really doesn't get.
1: Yeah, I'll just talk about three uh, principles that seem to challenge her thinking there uh, in her food truck analogy. So the first is uh, about experience goods versus credence goods, right? So we can evaluate food through experience, um, there is of course a limited number of times that I can experience a sandwich, but I've got at least 365 shots at it each year, as opposed to how long do I need to experience a school, especially as a parent, uh, rather than as the student inside the school before I get a sense of it. How often can I switch my kid's school? You often end up having to take it on credence, uh, rather than through experience. It's a really key difference there. Uh, a second, issue in DeVos' analogy there is what might be referred to as an attribution problem. So if I get a sandwich from a food truck and it's good, uh, that's because of the person who made it and the ingredients that he or she used, right? It's not really difficult to attribute that. Whereas if my kid is succeeding in school, why is that? It could be for a million different reasons, and it's in large part because education is so much more complex than a sandwich, and I cannot believe that those words have to come out of my mouth. Um, But, you know, education happens over long periods of time, and it happens invisibly in many cases. And of course, it pours outside of the school boundaries. Um, And uh, in fact, research has shown that most of a student's success in school is shaped by out-of-school factors. And then the third piece that I would point to uh, in complicating her understanding of how markets work and how they might apply to education is to talk about information asymmetry. So Uh, You know, I can see a sandwich. I can suss out its ingredients. uh, I can see who the provider is and how clean the space is. I really don't know what's going on inside my daughter's school on a day-to-day basis. I have a kind of rough sense. Um, She has a better sense, but of course she's seven years old. She also has her own interests and concerns and uh, tends not to want to debrief school with me for more than about 30 seconds each day. Those Thirty seconds, which I'm very grateful for, um, and so you know, parents who are the ones making these decisions, at least in Betsy DeVos's world. Uh, are really dependent on any message they can get about what's going on inside a school, which makes them incredibly vulnerable to marketing and messaging. And this is something we actually covered in one of our earlier episodes when we talked about advertising, as we called it. Uh, And charter and private schools know this really well. They are really good at marketing themselves.
0: It feels like Betsy DeVos has been with us, in this capacity at least, for much longer than a year. But for a lot of people, her confirmation hearing just over a year ago was really the first time they learned anything about her. As our multimedia extravaganza continues, I've picked some audio from that occasion. Here is then-Senator Al Franken grilling her about whether she understands the difference between—well, I'll let him ask the question—
1: and this is, uh, brings me to the issue of, of proficiency, which uh, the Senator uh, uh, cited, versus growth. And I would like your, your views on uh, the relative advantage of profi- measuring, uh, doing assessments and using them to measure proficiency or to me- measure growth.
2: Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, I think, if if I'm understanding your question correctly, around proficiency, I would I would also um, correlate it to competency and mastery, so that you each student is measured according to the um, advancement that they're making in each subject area. Well, that's growth.
1: That's not proficiency. So in other words, the growth they're making is in growth. The proficiency is an arbitrary standard. If
2: they've reached a level, the proficiency is if they've reached a a, third-grade level for reading, etc.
0: So, Jack, I'm curious. If Senator Jack Schneider had been at that hearing, what question would you have asked Betsy DeVos?
1: I think what I would have asked her uh, and tried to get her on public record in saying... Uh, would have been a question about what is acceptable to teach children in school using public taxpayer dollars, Um, because while I don't think that that's necessarily uh, the most troubling uh, of the issues that have come up over the past year, um, it is one that I think is quite clear about how she's approaching her work as Secretary of Education.
0: I would have asked an even more fundamental question. I think I would have asked her whether she thinks schools should be paid for by taxpayers at all. I raise that because I've been spending a lot of time mucking about in the history of the voucher movement, and what you see is that the goal has never been just school choice, but also shifting the burden of paying for education onto the parents who can afford it. Now, I know that our Betsy DeVos year in review episode is starting to feel like it's a year long and we are finally approaching the end. Jack, we've obviously been very focused on K12 education today, but DeVos's portfolio is much more expansive than that. She's had a busy year. For example, rolling back oversight of the for-profit higher
1: ed space also in terms of trying to roll back some of the Obama-era guidelines around sexual assault on campus in higher education.
0: Well, our penultimate task today is to pick something DeVos said or did during her first year that got lost. I've got a quote queued up and ready to go. This is from one of the first public speeches she made, and it was to the Conservative Political Action Conference.
2: So now let me ask you, how many of you are college students? (laughs) Well, the fight against the education establishment extends to you, too. The faculty, from adjunct professors to deans, tell you what to do, what to say, and more ominously, what to think. They say that if you voted for Donald Trump, you're a threat to the university community. But the real threat is silencing the First Amendment rights of people with whom you disagree.
0: As you just heard DeVos say, she's talking to college students in the audience and she's encouraging them to view their professors, and that would include people like you, Jack Schneider, really as the enemy. There's a heated debate taking place on campuses right now over free speech. And I think it's important to note that that DeVos herself is very involved in that.
1: Another thing that I thought got lost in the shuffle this year uh, is... Just the nature of the staffing uh, at the Department of Education. Um, So staffing has been a big issue across the Trump administration uh, for a couple reasons. One, uh, many departments have been understaffed, whether intentionally uh, or through a lack of capacity by the administration. And another issue has been the political nature of appointments, which of course is characteristic of all administrations, but in a very particular way with this administration. And I think that uh, you know a characteristic example of this would be the appointment by Donald Trump of Carlos Muñiz. And this is an excellent example because... While as a top aide to Florida's Attorney General, Carlos Muñiz helped defend the office's decision to sit out legal action against Trump University, Uh, and now Donald Trump has named him to be the top lawyer in the U.S. Education Department. And This is troubling for some obvious reasons, but also because it's something that has flown under the radar like so many things have in the past year, and that I would imagine is going to produce some kind of consequence in the next three years, and it's something that we should all be paying attention to.
0: So Jack, we mentioned at the very start of this episode that it is an anniversary episode. It's the first official anniversary of our podcasting together.
1: That's Been a lot of fun. I have a big smile on my face.
0: We are celebrating, or rather marking, one year of having Betsy DeVos serve in the office of Secretary of Education.
1: A slightly different expression on my face.
0: And there's another anniversary that I'm wondering if you can guess. And I'm going to play you a little snip, a little snip from an NPR story, and see if you know what political event they're referring to.
2: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Renee Montaigne. In a sweeping decision today, the Supreme Court has struck down the century-old ban on corporate spending in federal elections. The ruling also invalidates similar corporate bans in state elections. NPR's legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg, is at the high court, and she joins us now live. Good morning, Nina. Good morning, Renee. Now, the ban,
1: what is... I'll go with, is it Citizens United, Alex? Uh, Jennifer?
0: Very good, Jack. You're doing exceptionally well today. One of the most underreported parts of the Betsy DeVos story is the role that she and her extended family played in really delivering that Citizens United Supreme Court case that now allows for unlimited political spending. And um, we uh, we talked a little while ago about, we were listening to her speech at Harvard, and the comment she made about parents having an inalienable right to choose schools for their children was... Well, DeVos also feels very strongly that wealthy individuals have an inalienable right to spend as much money as they want to determine the course of elections because money is speech.
1: Yeah, it's, again, a kind of interesting take on uh, notions of empowerment and free markets. These are very particular Definitions, not necessarily particular to her, uh, but you know, when she talks about empowering parents, when she talks about empowering individuals, it's important to understand the broader context for how individuals are being defined. In this case, uh, you know, an individual is only as powerful as his or her voice, and voice, of course, uh, is in many cases, dependent on the money that one has uh, to broadcast that voice. So it's very important to understand how she is defining uh, an individual, for instance, that she does not necessarily believe that all individuals should have an equal capacity to shape whatever non-system exists.
0: Well, I thought we could wrap up this episode with Uh, with maybe one little piece of advice for how Betsy DeVos might be covered more effectively by the people who write about her. And I would transition directly from that little bit about Citizens United, that I wish people would be more aware of how political she is.
1: Yeah, and related to that, um, uh, something that I think we've talked about before on this show is that Betsy DeVos is often dismissed by people because of her lack of experience. Um, And it's important to talk about the lack of experience because that is a substantive issue. Uh, But of course, this is somebody who has a a very clear political agenda, and it is being shaped by a very clear ideology uh, that this is not, a naif in washington who is stumbling and bumbling her way through town that she has a very clear agenda and it's important to pay attention to that
0: very well put jack on that note i'm jennifer berkshire
1: and i'm jack schneider and first jennifer i want to say thank you for bringing me onto the podcast roughly one year ago and second to our listeners out there as we're gearing up for season two of have you heard uh let us know what you think. Send us a tweet at Have You Heard Pod? Or go online and give us a review, preferably a five star review, and we'll know how you feel about us that way.
0: And I would like to give a special shout out to our fantastic producer, Francisco. He's the real talent behind this podcast. If you're looking for production help with your own podcast, check out his website. It's www.ruffartmusic.com. That's R-A-F-A-R-T music.com. I can't say enough good things about him. And until next time, this is Have You Heard.